Welcome everyone. You know, here at uh, New Frontiers Church, we really don't want it to be about the man and his ministry. Uh, Christianity is all about Christ. If you take Christ out of Christian, what are you left with? Ian. And Ian can't save you, all right? So, this morning uh, we're starting a a new series of messages uh, from Nehemiah. I'm excited uh, for us to be going through Nehemiah together. Uh, I find I come back to Nehemiah every few years and preach on it. I think mainly because of the effect that it had on me as a very new Christian. Uh, Hadn't even been baptized yet. It was the summer of 1983, and I remember hearing Terry Virgo preach a a series of messages from Nehemiah. And for those of you who don't know uh, Terry Virgo, he is very much the founding father of our family of churches. And uh, he preached this series from Nehemiah, which is really a call Uh, for the church to be restored to the kind of spirit-filled community that we see depicted in the the New Testament. And uh, the vision that he cast of the church just about ruined me. I mean, God got hold of me there as a young 20-year-old and changed the trajectory of my life. So every few years, I come back to... Nehemiah, because I feel it's got so much to say to us about the mission that God has called us to. Um, Nehemiah had a very comfortable life, as we'll see, but he gave it all up. He even risked his life because God gave him a vision for something so much greater, something worth uh, giving his life for. In fact, he says in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, he says, I'm about a great work. And you know what? So are we. Because in Christ, Nehemiah's story is our story too. We are also about this great work. But what we need to understand from the outset is that this is God's work. Okay? This is God's mission. What we're going to see is that ultimately this is God's story and not ours. Okay? It's a story in which God is the hero and not us. Say God is the hero. When God calls us, as he called Nehemiah, is to participate in his mission. So you may have asked yourself from time to time, what's what's God's purpose for my life? And it's because we're looking for um, a purpose that is tailored to our individual lives. When really what we should be seeing is that the purpose of all of life including every aspect of our own lives, is actually wrapped up in God's great mission for the whole of creation, that we truly are about a great work. But it means instead of asking, what kind of mission does God have for me, perhaps we should be asking, what kind of me does God want for his mission? I like that. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
that's what I'm hoping will happen as we look at the story of Nehemiah. Okay, but first of all, we need to know some of the backstory. I want to spend a bit of time here in setting this up for this series, uh, just that we understand the story, as it were, leading up to this, because it's important. Um, now, one of the major themes of the Bible is that of God's blessing. Blessing, right? In the beginning, when uh, God created the universe in the creation story, he pr pronounced blessing three times. And blessing really is about um, wholeness and fullness, hence the number three. It's also about a flourishing and about fruitfulness and a multiplication and so on. And it's what God intended for mankind, that we would experience the blessing that flows from our relationship with him. So Genesis 1 and 2, you know, gets off to a great start. And then in Genesis 3, the story goes awry. When God's human creatures chose to rebel against their creator, and it's something that every one of us here is implicated in, where we have distrusted God's benevolence, or disobeyed his authority, or disregarded the boundaries that he has set for our freedom. And so instead of blessing, God's creation came under the curse of sin and death. So what did God do? Well, he chose an elderly, childless couple called Abraham and Sarah, and he made a promise. And so in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, leave your country and your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. In fact, he says, all the people groups of the world will be blessed through you. So God's great mission to redeem the whole cosmos from its curse and to extend his blessing again to the nations was going to start with this elderly barren couple. I mean, you could almost hear the angels take a sharp intake of breath. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Maybe you've said that about yourself at the thought of God using you. And yet that's what we see over and over again in God's story, that he chooses the weak things of this world to accomplish his purposes. Why? Because what is going to unfold clearly can only happen because of the power right, and the blessing of God. It's only by the grace of God. All right? Because God is the hero of the story. Say God is the hero. And yet, and yet he calls us to play a part in this great mission. So, from Abraham came the people of Israel, who again, you know, we find them there at the, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and they seem so weak. I mean, they're in slavery in Egypt. And these were the people who God was going to use to bring blessing to all the other nations. And so he delivers them out of their bondage and he brings them out of Egypt. But this is not just an escape story. They were taken out of Egypt so that they might be brought into the promised land, into the land of his blessing, the land that God had promised to Abraham, the land of Canaan. 
And it was foreshadowing what God would do for us, you see, through Christ, that we would be delivered from our slavery to sin and death, but it's so that we might be brought into God's blessing, that we might live under his blessing. But it's a blessing that God intends for us to share with others, right? That's what God intended for Israel. They were to be blessed for the sake of the other nations. You see, the nations would come to see how Israel were prospering in the land, how they flourished, how they enjoyed peace and God's protection, how they administered justice, how they took care of the poor and the elderly and the orphan and the widow and the outcast and the foreigner, this society, this kingdom uh, that God had put in place. And they were going to be a light, you see, to the Gentiles. They were going to be a city on the hill drawing all these other nations to worship God and to enter into his blessing. At least that was the plan, all right? So Joshua, he led Israel in to possess the land. David, he secured it and established the presence of God there in the city of Jerusalem. And then he handed over to his son Solomon. And if you were here last week, PJ talked about that transference from David to Solomon, and it was under Solomon that Israel really knew the fullest extent of God's blessing in material terms. So a magnificent temple was built, right? God's glory came, filled the temple. Nations came to marvel. It really seemed like God's promise was being fulfilled. But within just one generation, there was spiritual drift. That's all it took. One generation, and there was spiritual drift. They started to ignore God's commands. And instead of being a light to the nations, standing out as distinct from the other nations, they became increasingly like them, adopting their practices, worshipping their idols, exploiting the poor, and so on. So God had to send prophet after prophet to call them to return to him. But in the end, after repeated warnings, God, who seems in agony by this point because of his adulterous bride, he has to send her away. And so he tells his people he's going to remove them from the land, from his blessing, because they were no longer representing him to the nations. And so God used the Babylonians as his instrument of justice. They came and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was burned to the ground along with the temple and many of the people, they were carried off into captivity to live as exiles in Babylon. But God had made a promise. He'd promised Abraham and his descendants that they would be blessed and that they would bring blessing to the nations. And God is a promise-keeping God. Right? He is faithful even in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people. That's why God is the hero in this story. Say, God is the hero. So he told his people through the prophet Jeremiah that after a period of time, he's going to bring them back into the land 
and bless them again. And that's really where we pick up the story in Nehemiah. But first, I want us to read a couple of verses from the book of Ezra, because when this was first written, Ezra and Nehemiah were together. There was one uh, document, if you want, by the same author. So I want us to read the first uh, couple of verses or so from the beginning of the book of Ezra, because this is how it starts. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, talking there about the Jewish people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, this is incredible, all right? Almost 50 years after conquering Jerusalem, the Babylonians, who were the greatest world power at that time, were themselves conquered by this new world power, which was the Persians. And we know that from history. It was in October 539 BC that the Persian king Cyrus conquered the city of Babylon, where many of the Jews were living in exile. And right here in Ezra 1, we have a proclamation that was written down, was recorded for us, given by King Cyrus, telling us that he had been appointed to see the house of God rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that any Jews who were living in the city of Babylon were now free to go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild and settle the city. How on earth did a pagan king come to that decision? See, this was a complete change in international foreign policy at that time. But we're told here exactly why it happened, aren't we, in verse 1. It was in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So Cyrus, the most powerful person in the world at that time, who commanded nations, took orders from no one, was stirred by God to fulfill a promise given by an Israelite called Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah? He was a nobody. In human terms, he was a nobody. Right? Israel itself, totally insignificant among the nations, almost wiped off the map. And Jeremiah wasn't even accepted by his own insignificant people. I mean, he was beaten up and thrown down a well. He was the least of the least. And yet God, who is sovereign over all nations, changed international foreign policy to fulfill his promise that he gave through a nobody. And King Cyrus has to comply. Let me ask you, do you ever get worried about political leaders do you get upset about politics? They get you all riled up, and or do you get anxious about about I don't know domestic policy, foreign policy, international happenings, other world leaders? Is they, do those things make you anxious or get you worked up? 
Relax. Don't be worried. Right? God sits enthroned in the heavens, the Bible says. He is the Lord over all history. He is the Lord over all the nations. He is the Lord over every world leader. Right? They must serve him whether they realize it or not. Or maybe you feel worried about the church losing its influence in the country today. Maybe you feel that, you know, we've lost ground, you know, whether we're in the minority now in the culture, you know, we're feeling like um, we're like those exiles. You see, living in a culture that's more akin to Babylon than Jerusalem. You get worried about that? Feel weak, powerless? Listen, God will fulfill his word. He will keep his promises, right? And there are many more promises waiting to be fulfilled in the continuation of this story. Such as that he is building a house for himself that's going to fill the whole earth. Not just some stone building somewhere. No, made up of living stones, right? Made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue who are going to experience God's blessing, right? It's going to fill the whole earth. His glory is going to fill the earth one day. The whole earth, as we were seeing earlier on. Amen? And his purpose to use people like us, people like us, to fulfill that. In Nehemiah's day, God used all kinds of people with different kinds of gifts to build his house in Jerusalem. In fact, it happened in three waves. The first wave of exiles to return to Jerusalem was led by Zerubbabel, uh, he became the governor there, and they returned to rebuild the temple. Then, 60 years later, the second wave of exiles returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra. Ezra was a teacher, so he taught them God's word to rebuild their community. And then he was followed by Nehemiah, who led the effort to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. And so we come now at last to the book of Nehemiah. All right, and we're going to read now from Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read this together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa was the uh, winter palace of the Persian Empire. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of, the Jer of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, 
including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So Lord, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Lord, they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, this man being the, uh, the new king of Persia. And he says, for I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah um, was an Israelite who had a very privileged position actually uh, as a cupbearer to the, uh, it's a later Persian king now, King Artaxerxes. And he would have had a very comfortable life. But one day he heard some news that devastated him. That the people in Jerusalem were in trouble. And this glorious city that had once been the envy of the whole earth, right, that people had come to admire, was still in ruins. The gates were burned. It was now the subject of derision. They were being mocked by all the neighboring people. The butt of everyone's jokes. The walls were broken. The gates were burned. It meant anyone could just walk in and out. They had no protection. They really weren't a people. They were in trouble. And when Nehemiah heard this news, it really affected him. In fact, everything else that follows from this, you know, the great work that he was about to become engaged in, it all happened because of how Nehemiah was affected in that moment when he heard the news. It's how he heard the news. Because it caused him to mourn. He wept. He fasted. He prayed. For days, we're told. And I think, I really think this is important. I can remember Terry Virgo talking about the house of God saying this, saying, unless we've wept over the ruins, we'll never build the walls. Unless we've wept over the ruins, we're not building anything. So I want to ask you here today, how do you hear the news? How do you hear news? Because we hear all kinds of troubling news, don't we? All the time. I mean, we hear of mass shootings on a regular basis. We hear of people suffering, whether that's because of disasters like the recent hurricane, or because of disease, or drugs, or because of the selfishness of other people, or just the downright evil things that people do. And, it, and it's not just out there, is it? I mean, it's right here in our own cities, in our own communities. Are you moved by the plight of others? Right? Or when you hear of some human tragedy, does that cause you to mourn? 
You see, if I'm completely honest, when I hear news like that, I'm not as moved as I feel I should be. I'm not as moved as I feel I want to be. Do you understand? The truth is I'm much more likely to be moved to tears by someone winning the golden buzzer on America's Got Talent than I am maybe in some of the suffering I hear of others. Does that shock you? Don't get me wrong, I mean, uh, I may be affected, I often am. I may mourn for a while, but I'm not doing what Nehemiah did. I'm not sitting down and weeping and mourning, doing something about it. See, for me, it doesn't last. It doesn't necessarily lead to anything. It's just get on with my life. You like that? Why is that? Of course, one of the problems we face today is we've just got so much access to news, don't we? It's like information overload. How can we possibly process all of that? You can't, can you? Bad news we're bombarded with, you know, all the time. Uh, and I think it means we can become desensitized. Don't you think? Our consciences can be seared. Our, our hearts become hardened to the things that maybe should really concern us. But what can we do about that? I also wonder if here in the West, um, the relative comfort that we live in can play a part in dulling our hearts. I mean, I think if I lived with the kind of hunger um, or suffering the kind of injustice that so many people suffer in the world today, maybe it might cause me to long for God's kingdom to come and for something to be done much more than I do. But then again, Nehemiah lived in great comfort, didn't he? I mean, he ate from the king's table. He had some of the finest foods, drank some of the finest wines. I mean, he was, he was living the dream in the palace. It would have been so easy for him to ignore what was happening in Jerusalem. And yet, when he heard the news, he was devastated. He wept and he mourned. Centuries later, a greater Nehemiah also wept over the city of Jerusalem. When Jesus came into Jerusalem where he was about to uh, suffer and die and where he was to be mocked by the people there, he wept, but not for himself. He was overcome with emotion because he knew that the city was going to be destroyed once again as it was in A.D. 70 by the Romans. And he wept because the people had refused to receive him as the only one who could save them. Oh, 
Jerusalem, he says. Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. And so your house, that is the house of God, is left desolate. Do you mourn over the lost? Those who, the Bible says, without Jesus are going to perish? Do we mourn over the fact that the house of God today, which is the church, could be seen as desolate here in the Western world, particularly when you compare it to other places in the world today and to what it has been like in former times, even in this country, right? That rather than being a glorious city on a hill, that the walls are somewhat broken down. The church has become a subject of derision in many parts of society, right? That even telling someone that you're a Christian can be a bit of a conversation stopper these days, right? And yet, there have been times past when the Spirit of God was moving powerfully in this nation. And even fairly recently, you know, there are people in this room today, sitting here right now, in this room, who were converted powerfully because of what God was doing in the 1970s or in that kind of time frame. People who had supernatural encounters with God, who were convicted of sin, who were uh, delivered from addictions, who were filled with the Spirit of God and, 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 and had boldness to go and share the good news. There were mass baptisms at that time all over this country it led to thousands upon thousands coming into the house of God. Churches being planted. I mean, this church here came out of that. So for those of you here who lived through that, doesn't that cause you to mourn over the state of the church and the state of the nation today? I mean, praise God for the growth that we might see, right? But you see, where are the radical conversions? Right? Where is it really transforming lives and causing a stir out there in the community, right? as it did back then? And for the younger ones here who maybe are just hearing the news about past revivals for the first time, doesn't it cause you to long for something more than maybe what you're experiencing right now? But let's just be honest, shall we? Let's just be honest about this. The likelihood is we're all going to go out of those doors this morning and nothing's going to change. It's going to be business as usual. We're just going to get on with our lives. Because we're not like Nehemiah, are we? It's unlikely that we're going to go out from here and we're going to weep uh, and mourn and so on over our condition or for those around us. So, how do we conclude this then? How do we conclude this? Do we conclude that Nehemiah was obviously better than us and someone we should perhaps hold up as an example, someone that we should strive to be like, uh, but knowing in reality that we're unlikely to change because we can't just change our hearts? Is that it? Is that how we end this? 
Is that how we're meant to respond to this? What do you think? Listen, Nehemiah was no different to you and I. He was just an ordinary bloke with a cushy job. All right? Nehemiah is not the hero of the story. Who's the hero of the story? Say, God is the hero. It's God who stirred Nehemiah's heart, just as he stirred King Cyrus's heart. Right? Because this is about God's work. This is God's mission. It's his house, his people, his promises. It's God who changes our hearts and who gives us his heart. It's a work of the Spirit in us. And that's what we need desperately if we're going to build the house of God in our day. As Zechariah told the people, rebuilding the temple under Zerubbabel, he said, it's not our strength, it's not by our power, it's by the Spirit of God. That's why God uses the weak. You see, if our res first response to the problem is to come up with a plan of action, we have not understood the enormity of the problem. We need God. We need God's power. We need God's blessing. Amen? So I pray, this is what I pray for us here this morning. I pray that God would open our eyes to our true spiritual condition. I pray that he will give us eyes to see where the walls are in disrepair in our own lives. Those places where the enemy can just walk in and out. Or in our marriages and families and in the church. And that instead of doing what we normally do, which is either to look within and feel bad about ourselves or to look without and find someone else to blame, that instead we would look up. That like Nehemiah, we would come before God. We would come to God as we're going to do this week in our week of prayer. Okay, those sheets have got things to pray for every single day. We're not going to be praying for all of those things on the Wednesday and Friday, right? They're for us to be taken to God right throughout this week and coming before God with these things. And we'll gather on Wednesday and Friday. Um, I would encourage you, don't just drop in and out. Come for Friday for the whole half night of prayer. It's that important. It's that important. We need God. We need God. So I pray that God would open our eyes to that need. And we would come before, as Nehemiah said, the great and awesome God. The one who has promised to bless us and who keeps his promises, even in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people. Right? Listen, God wants to bless us. Right? In fact, I've been hearing from one or two in this church that sense of anticipation. People are sensing that we're going to see God move in greater power than we've seen in the past. There's a growing sense of expectancy here. I don't know if you're aware of it, but I'm just hearing from the ones and twos, just a, a real sense that God is on the move. I believe that because I believe it's God's desire. I see it here 
in Scripture that God wants us to know the fullness and the flourishing and the fruitfulness that comes from our relationship with Him and overflows from us into our relationships with others and into the world around us. The promise that He gave to Abraham and to Israel, that's our promise too. That is ours in Christ Jesus that God has promised to bless us and to make us a blessing. And Ephesians 1 says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's just that we're not experiencing the fullness of that right now. So the first step to seeing that change, I believe, is to come before God and to get real with him. Right? Not pretending that somehow we have it all together, life as usual. Not praying that fake prayer or trying to produce the fake tears. All right? But being honest about where we're at. That might be we're not feeling it right now. You know what? That's okay. God can do something about that if we're honest with him. Right? It means coming before him and being honest with where we're at. It means confessing where we are falling short and asking God to work in our hearts. Nehemiah, he came before God and confessed his sins before God. He says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Because you see, revival starts with us. It starts with us. It's no good saying, Lord, change your church. Lord, change my marriage. Change my situation. Change the spiritual atmosphere in this country. No, it starts with saying, Lord, change me. I'm part of the problem. Change me, Lord. I need you, Lord, to change my heart. We start by confessing where we've fallen short and where we've not cared about the things that God cares about. Change me, Lord. Break my heart, Lord with the things that break yours. I need you, Lord. And if you can say that this morning, right, God is already at work stirring your heart. And if you're not there yet, right, ask him. Be honest about it. Ask him, right, because he wants to come. He wants to come and to bring blessing into our lives. Amen? Do you believe that? That's what we see here. He is about a great work. And he wants to use every one of us. So let's respond to him now, shall we? We're going to respond by taking communion together.